The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation. I'm very pleased to welcome Jim Darcy, Senior Portfolio Manager in the Vanguard Fixed Income Group as my guest today. Jim runs Vanguard's largest muni bond fund, the Morningstar Gold Star Rated Vanguard Intermediate Term Tax Exempt Fund, which has $69 billion in assets. He's also a manager on several other funds, including the Vanguard Tax Managed Balanced Fund. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Lauren. So, you know, it's Valentine's Day and uh, happy Valentine's Day to you, Jim, and to all our listeners. I thought it would be fun to start off the show with a bit of trivia, but it seems there's very little reliable information on how the day came to be so widely celebrated. In fact, I was just reading earlier today that reporters at the New York Times have been trying to figure it out since like 1853. But in a story at the time, they concluded, and it's, quote, one of those mysterious historical or antiquarian problems which are doomed never to be solved. Solved. So, so much for my soothing efforts. We'll have to just go on to the topic at hand, which is muni bonds. So I thought we would just start with a quick look in the rearview mirror at the year that was 2022. And just to set the scene for the audience, you know, like many areas of the investing world, muni bonds uh, funds took a hit as the Federal Reserve aggressively raised interest rates, and that resulted in a sharp fall in bond prices. But the good news is that losses weren't as extreme for muni bond funds compared with taxable bond funds, but investors still fled the category. According to Morningstar, net withdrawals totaled $115 billion, or 11.5% of all money in muni bond funds at the start of 2022. So Jim, should 2023 be better for muni bonds? What's your outlook? I think 2023 should definitely be much better than 2022, although that's actually a very low hurdle to get over. If, but looking at our outlook, basically, as you already mentioned, the Fed's already done a significant amount of hikes as to the Fed funds rate, and some of the remaining hikes that we anticipate to occur have already been priced into the market. So we're entering 2023 at a much higher level of rates, which leads us to be more constructive on the market because of the fact that we've got a higher level of income. If you think about fixed income, what generates your return is a combination of both income and price performance. And this higher level of income will help cushion any negative performance we could have if you see rates go a little bit higher from where they are. That being said, I think a lot of the, with as I already said, with the current hikes being priced into the market and we're, as we're nearing the Fed fund end of the cycle, um, we don't necessarily see rates going significantly higher from uh, where we currently reside. Well, that's good news. You know, so muni bond, uh, you know, yields spiked in 22, and that obviously happened across the bond market. You know, where should we expect muni bond yields to go this year? Do you think they'll be stable, lower, or what do you see? I really think it's going to be a year of stability. Um, I think you could see on the very highest quality bonds, you could see some of those yields rise a little bit as they look relatively rich versus treasuries. 
But if you go into medium and lower rated securities or other securities where you can get additional spread for taking different risk metrics, um, I think those still look very attractive with spread still uh, very, very wide. So that could offset some of the rise in higher quality bonds. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Fed policy, and it sounds like a, uh, it's mostly been, I guess, factored into the prices. But, you know, Fed policy is a risk to munis, um, as it is to the rest of the bond market. Um, but have future interest rates really been priced into the shorter term muni bonds? So I think with the muni bond market, I think if you were to ask me where's the least attractive part, it is actually a little bit in the, in the front end. The muni markets gets very segmented about different pockets of demand and where there's demand um, in inside of five years, and in particular inside of 10 years, there's some large areas of retail, large retail investors that like to purchase those types of securities. And they actually look a little bit rich relative to, let's say, treasury securities. Mini treasury ratios are a traditional measure of value. So while in the treasury market, I think the Fed funds rates are priced in, within the mini market, I think there still could be um, some room from weaknesses. They don't look attractive on a relative value basis. But beyond 10 years, it looks more attractive. Okay. So, you know, one of the big issues whenever looking at muni bonds is obviously you know, the credit quality of state and local government balance sheets. So let's spend a few minutes uh, on that with the economy, you know, generally expected to worsen and you know, possibly go into a recession. How well fortified are state and local governments uh, to keep making those payments on their bonds? And, you know, I guess a follow up onto that. Are there any particular pockets or areas of concern on that front? Well, the good news is that state and local governments are actually sitting in a very good position from a credit quality perspective. Um, there's a couple of factors driving this. The first is that they're still benefiting from the large amounts of federal stimulus we got through the different acts in re, uh, due, due, due to COVID in 2020 and 21. We saw significant money go to help support state and local governments. Uh, the second part, though, is that also the economy rebounded much more than people initially expected. And we've seen an increase in tax receipts from both the income and sales tax level. So state and local governments are in a very good position, even if we were to go into a mild or even more severe recession. A couple of examples of where this is illustrated is if at the state level, if you look at the two lowest rated states, which would be the state of New Jersey and the state of Illinois, last year they were actually both upgraded by the agencies, reflecting these increased cash flows and cash balances. So you mentioned, I guess, two of the, the worst, New Jersey and Illinois. What are some of the, the best? Um, I mean, the the best is the majority of the states are actually very highly rated, AAA and AA. So if you have like the state of Virginia's, the state of Virginia's AAA, Maryland Geo is AAA. Um, you know, and those have been AAA. For, those have been North Carolina. Those have been AAA for a very long. They're for a very long time. So there's not very much credit risk. And I think going back to one of your earlier, your first question, you just asked the one thing that's really important to remember with municipal bonds is inherently it's a very high quality asset class. And for the most part, even if we're seeing credit stress, I mean, there's with a bond, your risk is always not getting paid. Mm -hmm. But within the municipal market, that risk is very, very small. And historically, they have much lower default rates than we've seen in, let's say, the taxable market. If you look at corporate bonds or other types of uh, taxable securities with, cre with credit risk, usually it's more of a downgrade risk or and that could cause a risk that spreads might spreads wide, not might widen. It's not to say that municipals can't default. They do. But it's again, it's a generally a very small risk. Well, that's good news. I'm happy to hear that Virginia is AAA rated because I'm based in Virginia. So that is good to know. Um, I just want to also remind the audience that if you do have questions for Jim, please do submit them in the Q&A feature because I'll be leaving some time at the end to go through uh, your questions. 
So let's talk a bit more about where on the muni bond curve you see the best opportunity. So it sounds like perhaps not on the front end, but you know, long term, so say 15 years out, sort of medium term, short term, where do you see the best opportunity at the moment? I actually think that one of the best opportunities, and it's great because it's kind of right where the intermediate fund traffics in a lot of securities, is in between the medium and long term from the ranges you just laid out. So I really like the 15-year part of the curve. As I said, there's large amounts of demand inside of 10 years, which is keeping those yields, I think, artificially low relative to other fixed income securities. But the curve from 10 to 15 years is very, very, it's very steep. It's about 65 basis points of additional yield you pick up by extending just those five years, so roughly 13 basis points a year. Um, it, so that gives you a significantly higher level of income by just extending out five years. More importantly, on a longer-term horizon, there's something called roll-down, where as, as, the, as your bonds age, they become shorter, and so that should cause some price appreciation to occur, um, which should, again, help your total return. And then a final thing is once you go beyond 10 years, again, as you leave some of these areas of high demand, the other risk metrics that we get paid for, so whether it be credit quality, sector risk, structure risk, those spreads widen out. So in addition to the base yield that we measure our yields against as going higher, you're getting an additional wide, additionally wider spreads, which make even for even wider, higher yields by just extending out five years. So you just mentioned, you know, one of the factors, you know, credit quality. Should investors look for the highest rated muni bonds in terms of credit quality, or do you think they can go down a little bit in quality? I think if you, I think from a mutual, I mean, from a mutual fund perspective, it makes a lot of sense for us to invest in a and more A and triple B securities, which is where we've been active in trying to um, add exposure. You know, the municipal market is a very large market as far as the number of issuers there. And so you really need a strong credit staff to look at all of these different securities. There's tens of thousands of different issuers. And so with our deep credit team, we have the expertise to be able to go into some of these A and triple B securities and find securities that we like that are offering us a really good risk reward um, relationship and are gonna help add performance later on. So let's talk a little bit about sort of, you know, the, the range uh, of options in terms of where uh, one can find mini bonds. And one example, you know, is infrastructure. So in late 2021, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was signed into law, and that will provide $550 billion of new federal investments over five years. And that spans everything from bridges and roads to the nation's water and energy systems. So what do you think are some good ways to play infrastructure, which is a very big theme nowadays, across muni bonds? You know, it's interesting. That's a good question because it is a big theme, but it's a theme that actually comes up repeatedly because it's, I think infrastructure is something that people always, at the federal level, it seems like a good thing to spend money on to help improve the infrastructure of the U.S. Um, and if you think about municipal bonds, they actually are kind of one of the primary ways that state and local governments infrastructure does get financed throughout this country. The reality is with that if that act is once you pass that, a lot of times there can be a very big delay though from the money being available to something actually being, we'll use the term shovel ready, meaning mm -hmm. if the federal government says, listen, here's money to build a new road or a new bridge, it's not as if all these local municipalities have, you know, stacks of bridges planned to build. They have to come up with, you know, what bridge needs to get replaced, it, you know, what's the plan to build a new bridge. Um, so it, it is beneficial from to the market and the fact that it kind of gives us additional opportunity for increased supply, but it's not like a floodgate where we're going to see huge supply suddenly come because of this bill. It'll, it'll kind of slowly build out as time goes on. 
And I'm wondering, you know, years ago, I remember sort of reading a little bit about muni bonds, and I think there were things like, you know, bonds on airports and all kinds of interesting different things. You know, where are some sectors or types of muni bonds that stand out, do you think, as good opportunities? I think one area, I mean, we, we do definitely invest, um, we're overweight airports and we like to add airports. Uh, another area would be toll roads. So these are two examples of infrastructure, obviously. Um, one reason is I think they are generally, most airports and toll roads are single A, some of the toll roads are triple B. Uh, but in addition, they offer a very resilient um, credit quality if we do get some sort of mild recession. If you think about it, people do still continue to fly within this country. And we've seen in past recessions, toll road traffic not take a significant hit. So they do weather that storm well if you do see some credit stresses due to recession. So let's talk a bit more about your portfolio. So you mentioned your, your overweight airports and toll roads. Uh, what else are you overweight? Uh, we also have a significant overweight, we're overweight uh, healthcare. Uh, you know, and healthcare is one where, as I said, we're trying to add lower quality securities. I think that is an area where there is a little bit of stress in the market, but with our credit team, we're able to find the ones that we think will be winners. Um, but it's also probably one of the largest sectors in that, let's say, A and triple B space. So it's just really where the opportunity set is there. And so if we're trying to add lower rated credits, that's where our opportunities are. So we're able to go through there and find not-for-profit healthcare systems that we think are going to provide a great return for investors. Another area would be dedicated tax bonds in the lower rated space. And so those are bonds where it's not necessarily a general obligation bond. It's got a specific tax that's backing it. But we can look at those and we can, you can do a lot of analysis looking at what we anticipate the tax revenues to be now and going into the future. Um, and we can get very comfortable um, with those outlooks. And generally speaking, I feel you have a lot of protection on a lot of these credits, um, but you're able to definitely get significantly more spread than you would in, let's say, a AAA Virginia Geo, although it's a great credit. So I just want to let listeners know if they want to look up the fund, the ticker is VW. I-T-X. So overweight airports, toll roads, healthcare, dedicated um, tax bonds. Give us a sense of uh, some areas that you're perhaps underweight and why. So one of the things, it's, it's interesting because we were just talking in the beginning of this conversation about the credit quality and how strong it is in general obligation bonds. That is actually an area that we, we would be underweight. And the reason is because... My saying that journal obligations are in good shape, state and local governments are in good shape, it's not an out of consensus view. The market, I think, agrees with me. And so because of that, the spreads aren't particularly wide. Um, generally speaking, they're higher quality and even on the lower quality ones, let's use New Jersey and Illinois as an example, we've seen significant spread tightening over the last couple of years. So we feel that there's better opportunity away from those sectors, even though, even though they are very high, even though they are high quality and, and in good shape from a credit fundamental standpoint. Great. Now, now, for some listeners who may not currently own muni bonds, I'm wondering if you can kind of give us your sort of elevator pitch on why you think it's a good idea, uh, what the case is for including muni bonds in a bond allocation. I think if you're an investor that is in a higher tax bracket, it's really a question of, it's not a question of should I be in or out of muni bonds. It's a question of really how attractive are they at that point in time. It's it's just a degree of attractiveness. But you know, if you're in a higher in a higher tax bracket, they're always going to give you, I, I feel, very attractive return after tax return. And more importantly, as I said earlier, it's a it's a relatively safe asset class with a historically very low default risk um, or default default rate. So again, if you're in a higher tax bracket, it's just a, I think it should be probably a core part of any uh, taxable portfolios that you have, meaning a portfolio where you're having to pay income tax on it.
I was wondering also if you're expecting a lot of new issuance. I was just reading there was a story, I think it was in the bond buyer, and they had a sort of a note saying that on the new issuance front, major banks are expecting an average of 400 billion this year, up from 350 billion in, in 2022. And I'm wondering if you're also, uh, those projections are along the lines of what, what you're thinking as well. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too off from those projections. I think Historically, where we've been in the past, there's two types of issuance that come in our market. There's what we call new money issuance. So those are bonds that are being used to build new things, let's call them. So that would be new toll roads, new airports, new schools, new parks, whatever is getting financed in the municipal market. The other part of our market, though, is refunding issuance. And that's issuers basically looking at where we are in today's interest rate environment and where they issued bonds and trying to refund their old debt to generate an interest savings. Think of it like refinancing your mortgage if rates go down. So I think that could actually, that part of supply could be down versus in the past because at the higher level of rates we currently are, some of those, ref some of those refundings might not make sense. Okay, I've seen we've got quite a lot of questions coming in, Jim, so I'm going to, going to pivot to our audience questions. And again, just a reminder that if you do have a question, feel free to pop it in the, in the, the box and we will um, get to your question. So Jeremy asks, Many have said bonds are back, but what can investors expect in this continuing high inflation market and the narrow path the Fed must walk to temper inflation? Well, I think, in my opinion, the Fed's really committed to fighting inflation. And while inflation is still high, we're definitely seeing it trend down. And I think one thing everyone has to remember is that Fed policy operates with a pretty significant lag. And so We've already seen significant hikes. There's maybe, a, you know, let's call it two or three more hikes. There's a few, there are a few more hikes left, but those will continue to play into the uh, fighting inflation and slowing the economy down. So I, I'm actually fairly confident that the Fed will control inflation and it will continue to come down. And it, it's mainly because they've voiced that that's their primary, that's what they want to achieve. So because of that, I think you're not going to see as much risk of inflation getting out of control. And that could cause, if that were to happen, that could cause longer term rates, obviously, to rise significantly. So, so Jimmy did mention New Jersey uh, early on in the conversation, but Richard asks, what is the outlook for the municipal bond market in New Jersey and the Vanguard New Jersey tax-exempt long-term bond fund? I think, I mean, the... Broader speaking, we're, we're generally positive on New Jersey-specific credit. They've done a lot of really great work with the over the last few years in trying to address some of their bigger looming issues. And the biggest issue they've had um, have been their pensions. And they went from not fund, like there's a minimum payment you have to make to fund your pensions to keep them funded. And they've done a lot to where they weren't making the minimum payment to even advancing and doing it faster than they originally planned making those full payments to help get the pension in better shape. Granted, the pension still is a large liability, but what we're comforted by is them doing what we view as the right things to try and address some of these issues. And I think that's really a broader thing with the municipalities. What we look for is, you know, some credits are better than others. Everybody has some sort of issue, but are we seeing the governments doing what we view as the things to try and address those issues and fix them? Because ultimately most of these things should be fixable. So Robert asks, will municipal bond levels that are rated investment grade reach yields of 5% or even higher this year? That's very, I mean, that's, that's pretty hard. That's pretty hard for me to answer. I mean, I would think that it depends a lot also on what the specific the bond is within the investment grade universe. That's anything that's triple B minus or higher. And then additionally, 
there's like I said, there's different risk metrics. There's different coupons you can add, you can you can buy. Um, I would argue, generally speaking, though, that most investment grade credits probably aren't going to see five percent yields. Fair enough. We're, um, we're, John, quite, we're quite far from those levels. Okay. John asks, when will you be adding longer term bonds given the current market? So at Vanguard, one of the things that we try and do is we try and build our funds to be the tools for the end investor to make a portfolio that they want to be appropriate. And so we try and stay very true to mandate within the funds. So, you know, we have a broad muni bond lineup running on the national side. We have a short term fund, which would be our shortest to our long-term and high yield fund, which would be our long-term products. And intermediate kind of sits in the middle there. So, you know, my goal is to kind of stick to the mandate and provide a product that I think is reflective of what the investor expects. And if the investor wants to go longer, then they should they could go and buy one of our longer-term funds, like long-term or high yield. So generally speaking, within the intermediate fund, my investable universe goes out to about 20 years. Um, so I'm gonna be focused, uh, you know, 20 years and in for the, most of the purchases. Um, that being said, I have been adding longer-term securities, and if you were to look at the fund, we're going to be overweight securities 10 years and longer versus, let's say, you know, underweight securities inside of five years, mainly for the reasons I mentioned earlier and that I think they appear um, quite rich on a valuation basis. So Jeremy has a question that's a little bit beyond the, just the scope of sort of the muni market, but since you are an investor, I'm going to pose it to you, and you can either punt the question or, or, or offer a, a, your thoughts on it. And he asks, many have recognized the death of the, the balanced portfolio, and that's the 60-40, you know, uh, stocks to bonds. Can you discuss the future of this going forward? And again, if that's not quite your wheelhouse, that's okay, but any thoughts on that for Jeremy? I'm gonna, I'm, I would actually, I mean, that's not really necessarily my wheelhouse. I'm happy to answer anything specific to the muni market or fixed income in general. But regarding asset allocation, there's you know many different opinions and I'll leave that to people and their financial advisors. Okay. So Michael asks, how should investors think about the role of munis in a long-term strategic asset allocation? I think that kind of ties back to an earlier answer I gave. And if you're an investor that's in a higher tax bracket, my opinion is that in your taxable account, so you're not 401k, you're not IRA, obviously, I feel as a U.S. investor, muni should probably always play some portion, if not a significant portion, of your fixed income allocation. If you look at some historical numbers, I don't have them in front of me, but from a risk return basis, on an after-tax basis, munis are generally speaking going to be, in my opinion, a core part of your fixed income portfolio, again, for an, in a taxable account where you're having to pay taxes as a U.S. investor. So Michael N. asks, how can retail investors address a lack of trading volume and wide bid-ask spreads when trading individual muni bonds? He says, I'd greatly appreciate any insights into where and how individual retail investors can get visibility into the largely opaque markets for individual muni bonds. And he asks, where can I get data on munis comparable to the data for equities? So I think I'm going to I'm going to give you two answers on that. I think one is I think that's actually where not to plug our own products, but I think where a mutual fund is really a great product because you don't have to worry about that. In that we're institutional investors, we have deep access into the markets, and we're able to get you get our investors institutional execution on both small and large pieces within the funds um, to try and generate the highest level of return possible. Um, to answer your specific question, though, if you go to the MSRB website, they do provide um, data. So every bond that trades does post on the website and you can actually see specific QCIPs. But there's, it, it can be difficult, I think, from a retail investor because there are thousands of QCIPs that trade on a daily basis. So there's a lot of data to parse through. 
Okay. Hal would like to know uh, what the risks are of underfunded pension liabilities. Um, it's, a, it's a risk that's been there. I mean, it's not necessarily a new risk. It's something that's really kind of been a bigger risk since the great financial crisis. Uh, I think it's a something that we read about and it's easy to write about. But in my mind, again, as long as the issuers and the, the underlying governments are doing the right things to address it, it's something that is very much solvable. And the fact that um, it's a very long-term liability. And so if they're able to raise tax revenues or make, as I said, these minimum payments to try and fund that, you might be underfunded for a significant amount of time, but you're moving in the right direction and it should be something that they can handle. So it's not something that's a risk that we look at, um, but for the majority of investment grade credits, it's not something that um, we're overly concerned about. That, that being said, I don't want you to think that we're being dismissive of it. It's definitely um, part of our analysis. And when we look at credits, we do look at what their funded ratio is, but more importantly, we look at, again, I refer to that minimum payment. Are they making the minimum payments to get back to what would eventually be a fully funded ratio? And I think that's to me a bigger thing to focus on. So we touched a bit on, on New Jersey earlier on. Now we're gonna sort of travel to the West Coast and Sharma asks, what is the California Muni bond risk? I think, Cal I, um, I think within California, there's a lot of great opportunities actually. And I don't view there as being that much risk. I think the biggest risk within California at the state level is the way that the um, income tax system works there and that it's a very, um, it's a higher tax state with a very st steep ramp up to the maximum tax bracket. And so um, you can see some large volatility sometimes in income tax revenue in particular tied to the stock market as there's a lot of tax revenue tied to capital gains to the stock market through the option of ex option exercises, let's say from tech company employees and things like that. That being said, they've done a lot to mitigate that. And I think one thing that's really great about California is it's such a large state is that there are a vast number of different credits to invest in that actually um, can diversify you away from the state itself. So there's a lot of different local governments, water and sewer, toll roads, et cetera, the general mini bond market um so you can get a very diversified california portfolio and again though don't interpret that as to say i'm not negative on the state it's just that is probably the biggest risk is that their income can be volatile tied to the stock, stock market okay david has a question and again this may be better suited to a financial advisor and you can certainly uh, let him know if that's the case but he asks can an investor put an entire fixed income portfolio into munis or should they balance munis and corporates and to what extent should they mix or balance so I would, I mean, that's obviously something that's more personal. And so I would definitely work with your financial advisor um, to kind of come up with what the best balance is. Because again, it depends on what your tax situation is, what your tax rates are. Do you need to generate a certain amount of taxable income? There's a lot, I, I can't have insight into everybody's individual situation to make a broad recommendation. That being said, as I said earlier, if you are an individual that pays a significant amount of taxes in the US, I think Muni should always be a core fixed income holding within your allocation. Great, we've got time for one more question, and this is from Bradley. And he says, are leveraged municipal funds a good play compared to unleveraged funds? Is the risk worth it buying the leveraged funds? So again, on that one, I would punt a little bit to you and your financial advisors. I would say that if you think about what does leverage do, leverage increases your risk. And so there's going to be a significantly 
higher level of risk. If you think about duration, that's a fund sensitivity, the movements in interest rates because of the leverage and how those funds invest, they have significantly longer duration. So when rates rise, like they did over 2022, those funds have much worse performance. That being said, if rates were to rally, they should have better performance again because they're more sensitive to the movements in interest rates. I would say the dividends on those funds have fallen as the curve is flattened with hints if you think about leverage, generally you're borrowing in the short term to fund longer term purchases. So as the yield curves flatten, the, that leverage doesn't work quite as well from an income perspective. But again, it's something to work through with your financial advisor if it's going to be, if that level of risk is going to be appropriate in your portfolio. So I'm going to squeeze in one more question because Sharma has a follow-up question to the California one. And she says, thank you for the earlier answer. Can you name a few California Muni bonds to consider? Um, generally speaking, we don't get too much into naming specific credits. And again, it's uh, mainly because there's so many different credits in there. It's, it's, but I would say that generally speaking, we're like I said, there's a lot of great credits in California. If you look at some of the you know, different, there's different school districts. I think school districts is an area that's actually um, a great investment because the way school districts work in California is that the bonds are voter approved, meaning that at that point, once the voters approve them, the school district can tax to somewhat whatever needs to happen to pay the bonds back. So school district bonds are one that are going to have a very safe credit profile. Generally speaking, again, it's, there's hundreds of them, so I can't speak to everyone in that statement. So unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. And thank you so much, Jim, for joining me today. We hope you can all join us again tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Emma Ackerman and Michelle Dickerson, law professor at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, will discuss the ways in which Black Americans were systemically cut off from home ownership, the structural issues that continue to bar access to housing today, and the pandemic's effects on home ownership among people of color. Happy Valentine's Day to you all. Until next time, thank you for listening and be well. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.